The following audio is from LCBC Church. To learn more about LCBC, visit lcbcchurch.com. Man, I love that song, and we've been playing it a lot in my house, and it's so funny, my three-year-old, every time he comes home, comes on, he's like, Dad, that's your song. And, uh, and I'm like, it is, I just, I've loved it. And uh, one of the things that I love about that song is it just ties so well to where we've been as a church for the last few weeks, is we've been in this series called Rough Crowd. And we've been saying that we're a rough crowd with rough past and rough hangups and rough habits and rough situations. And, and I love how we've just been looking at how God knows that we're rough and he still likes us and he loves us and he forgives us and he accepts us and he wants the best for us even in our roughness. And, and so it's just been, that was just a great song. But today we're gonna kind of turn a corner and, and see a lot of us, we're a part of the rough crowd, but we also have rough edges. And we have rough edges that are hurtful edges and painful edges, and, and they're hurting us and they're hurting others, and, and we're gonna have a tough conversation today and a conversation that might be hurtful for you. And the reason why I say that is as I've processed through it, it was kind of hurtful for me because all of a sudden I realized that I've gotta do some stuff. And, and see, the conversation we're having might require something of you that might actually be one of the most brave, courageous, scary things you've ever done because um, see, we're gonna be looking at a truth today, a truth from a crazy story in the Bible, um, a truth that, uh, that we discover that the truth is, uh, the, the longer we hide, the greater the hurt, but when we stop hiding, we start healing. The truth that the longer we hide, the greater the hurt, but when we stop hiding, we start healing. And, and I don't know about you guys, but I learned a lot about hiding as a kid. Um, I learned about hiding because my mom would drag me shopping. Did any of you guys get drugged shopping with your mom? So, in the middle of being drug shopping, I invented this awesome game called Let's Freak Mama Out. And here's the way you play the game. So maybe you've played it, maybe your kids played it on you. You wait till mama's not looking, and then you jump in the closest clothes rack that she can't see you in, and you stay until your name comes over the loudspeaker. It's awesome when you're the kid. It's terrible when you're the mama. And if you know my kids, please, for the love, do not teach them this game. They do not need to know this game. But as kids, we just naturally hide. We naturally play that game. We naturally play hide and go seek. But then as we grow up, we're not like shopping with our wives, hiding in coat racks. You know what I mean? Like, that's weird. If you're a grown man hiding in a coat rack, we need to have a conversation. Um, but we start hiding other things and in other ways. And, you know, we, we start hiding where we were or what we were doing or what we were thinking or looking at. We hide the numbers, the receipts. We try to hide the smells or the messages or the text, and we hide while believing a lie. Believing a lie that by hiding, we're not hurting. We're not hurting ourselves, we're not hurting others, but, but the truth, the truth that we're looking at is the longer we hide, the greater the hurt. But when we stop hiding, we actually start healing. And, and we're gonna be looking at a story in the Bible of a guy named David, and this is a crazy story, and, and here's what you gotta know about David. David is a true rags to riches story. See, David, whenever we first meet him, he is just the runt of the litter, the youngest kid, which um, he was the smallest, littlest, just runt. He also is a shepherd, which means he is like the lowest of the lowest within a cultural totem pole. And he is just dirty, nasty, good for nothing shepherd, little boy, David. And so David is out in the fields, minding his own business, just being the runt, taking care of the, the family sheep being kind of the laughing stock of the community. And all of a sudden, one day, um, this guy named Samuel shows up. And Samuel was like a rock star in the community. Samuel was kind of a mover and a shaker. He was this incredibly influential leader, and he shows up. 
And he says, I need to see your son, David. And so David, while he's just watching the sheep, all of a sudden his brother comes running over and he goes, hey, come home, come home, come home. Samuel, the Samuel is in our living room and he wants to talk to you. What did you do? And so David comes home and, and here's little bitty David looking up at Samuel and, and Samuel starts talking to him. And Samuel goes, yeah, you know what? You're a man after God's own heart. Yeah, 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 you're, you're the next king. Samuel says a prayer and Samuel leaves. And David is kind of set, uh, left in his living room just standing there kind of shaking his head like, what just happened? I was tending sheep and you're gonna tell me I'm gonna be the king? Well, over the next 15 years, to David's shock and to everyone else's shock, it happened. See, David just had this like uncommon favor from God and just found himself at the right place at the right time doing the right thing over and over and over and over again till eventually he became king. And, and now I don't want you to think this was like a bed of roses, just an easy walkway into the palace. It actually had some really big ups and downs. The current king wasn't too fond of this shepherd boy taking his boy's throne. And so they had some conflict they had to work through. But at the end of the day, David was the man. And David won, and he was the king, and he, um, he, built a, he drove out all the invading armies, and he took over the kingdom, and he built a palace, and, and he was just loved. And he was living high, enjoying all the riches, all the palace, just life was golden, until this one spring. So we read in 2 Samuel 11, the following spring, and we say the following spring because the year before, David led this huge military victory, uh, defeating some of the enemies. Uh, the time of year when kings go to the war, which side note, isn't it really nice that in biblical times, they waited to murder each other in the nice times of the year? Like they didn't fight when it was rainy and cold. They waited till springtime to actually go fight each other. It's really kind of them. So flowers are out, war's out. So then David uh, sent Joab and the Israelite army to destroy the Ammonites. In the process, they laid siege to the city of Rabbath, but David stayed behind in Jerusalem. David stayed behind in Jerusalem, and this is where things get interesting. David was a military leader. He was a military hero. He was a war man. He needed to be in the battle, but for some reason, David stays home. Now, there's two reasons why David could have stayed home. One is a really good reason. I mean, Joab, his go-to general, had been following David for years. He had been observing David, and, and maybe this was just the time to transition leadership, to give leadership to Joab and say, I trust you, you lead the army. The other option is David just got lazy, and David really enjoyed the comfortable uh, nature of the palace, and he enjoyed just the luxuries of that life, and he didn't wanna go live in a tent anymore. But for whatever reason, David now finds himself vulnerable. And we find ourselves vulnerable whenever we're in seasons of transition, whenever there's a change in our life, whenever we are out of our habits and rhythms. See, whenever we're in a state of change or transition or out of our habits and rhythms, we just find ourselves vulnerable and we often find ourselves looking for something to fill our time. And, and I love what Ben Foote from Flatirons Church out in Colorado says about this moment in David's life. He says, David was bored. And he said, here's what I've learned about bored men. Bored men are dangerous men. That's why we burn stuff, because we're bored. So women, if you come home and your husband's burning something, that just means he's bored, he needs more chores. Um, but boredom is dangerous. Boredom gets all of us, and boredom affects men and women. But boredom, it comes with side effects, because whenever we get bored with our job, or bored with our marriage, or bored with our kids, or bored with what's normal, we find ourselves incredibly vulnerable vulnerable to dangerous moments, 
dangerous moments that could lead to dangerous stupidity. Stupidity that we're about to see from David. So David is bored. And so this one afternoon, David got out of bed while taking a nap, after taking a nap, and he went to stroll on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty, note that, unusual beauty, taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So here's David, bored, vulnerable, should have been out at war, but instead he's at home, and he just takes a nap, and he decides to go up to the roof. Now, the rooftops in Jerusalem, something you need to know about Jerusalem is the streets are really narrow. There's not really great airflow. So if you want to breeze, if you want to relax, you go to the, to the top of your roof. And your top of your roof is kind of like the back patios here in America. And so he goes up to his, his patio for all intents and purposes. He's enjoying an evening. And you get two things on top of the roof. You get a breeze and you get a view. And, and I promise you this, David's uh, roof was the highest roof in the city. He was their hero. He was the one they loved. And so he had the best breeze in the city but he also got the best view in the city. The best view of a, an exceptionally beautiful neighbor. An exceptionally beautiful neighbor who just so happened to be taking a bath. But see, I think David knew Bathsheba. See, Bathsheba's father was one of David's mighty men, which was like this elite fighting force that David had spent time with. And, and her, uh, Bathsheba's grandfather was actually one of David's uh, most trusted advisors. And so David knew Bathsheba's family. And there's actually uh, one way of translating the scriptures that says, instead of asking, who is that? That David's actually saying, isn't that Bathsheba? So here's how I read this moment in David's life. He's bored, he's vulnerable. And he goes up to the rooftop to enjoy an exceptionally nice view. But he also knows that from that spot, at that time, in that place, he could not only get an exceptional breeze, but an exceptional view of an exceptionally beautiful woman who happened to be taking a bath. I don't know many men in the history of the world who, when given that opportunity, would not be interested and lingering. Wouldn't be interested in just, you know, enjoying the breeze a little bit longer. Just, you know, stay in put, not moving too quick. But here's where one of the quotes from Martin Luther, one of the church reformers, I love this quote. He says, you can't keep a bird from flying over, but you can keep it from building a nest. See, it's one thing to have a passing thought, desire, interest that comes into our mind. We can't control those, but we do control inviting it to stay. And this is where David crosses a line. See, we don't control temptation, but we do control the invitation to stay. We don't control the temptation, but we do control the invitation to stay. And the thing is, is we're never forced to sin. We're never forced to cross the line. We're never forced to make bad choices. It's always whenever we decide to invite it in to say it can stay. And this is where David he crosses the line and he invites Bathsheba over. And Bathsheba, she didn't have a choice. And the king calls, you gotta go. So she comes over, they do the birds and the beads and David thinks it's all good. All the evidence is covered, he got away with it. Until a month later. A month later, all of a sudden he gets word that the evidence wasn't all destroyed. In fact, the evidence has grown a heartbeat and now it's living in her belly. And so Bathsheba sends the news, I'm pregnant. 
And David does what so many of us do in that moment whenever we realize there's evidence against us that someone's gonna find out, he totally panics. And see, in his panic, he had an option. At this moment, he has two choices. He could go public or he could go private. He could come clean or he could cover up. And, and see, David had been winning and winning and winning and winning. And he thought, surely I can win again and I can win with the cover-up. I can win with keeping this thing private. I can win with a cover-up story. I'm gonna scheme to keep this going the way I want it. And so David, he starts, his wheels are turning on. How do I get out of this? How do I hide this? How do I keep the cover-up going? And he decides, Uriah. The husband, he's at war. He's lonely. He's lonely at war. I, I need an update on the war. Sends a quick letter. Hey, send Uriah. I need an update on the war. I need, I need an update on the war from Uriah. It's not Uriah's job to tell David how the war's going. David just wants Uriah to work his cover-up story. So he invites Uriah uh, back to the palace. Uriah tells him about how the fighting's going. He gives Uriah a gift, and then he says to Uriah, go on home and relax. You've been away for a long time, go relax. Uriah, that boy's in the battle, and he's made a foxhole prayer. He's made a prayer of God, I will do whatever you want me to do if you will get me out of this battle and through this spring because I wanna come home and be alive. And so almost in this like act of fasting, he's giving up his greatest desire to stay alive. And so instead of going home to his wife to quote unquote relax, he goes to the, to the gate of the palace and he sleeps with the other guards as a way of saying, God, keep me alive, keep me alive, keep me alive, keep me alive. And David finds out the next morning, he finds out his cover-up plan isn't working, and so he's a little annoyed, so he invites Uriah back, and I love this question that he asks Uriah, what's the matter with you? I mean, that's a good common sense question. You've been away for a long time. Your wife's at home. What's the matter with you? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? What's wrong with you? And Uriah replies to the king, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and his officers are camping in open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear, I would never be guilty of acting like that. It's almost like he's pointing at David and saying, I swear I would never do what you're doing. Well, David at this point knows he's gotta up his game. But he should have known that the longer he hides, the greater the hurt, but instead of that, he decides to to go all in, and so he says, you know what, Raya, stay for dinner with another night. But this night, he just doesn't serve him food, he serves him a drink, and another drink, and another drink, until he gets that boy drunk. And he's got Uriah tipsy, three sheets into the wind, and then he whispers into his ear, go home, you've got an exceptionally beautiful wife waiting for you. Go home and be a good husband now, go, go boy, go. Uriah leaves the palace, stumbles out, and, and I just imagine that he steps out and the cool evening breeze hits him and it kind of wakes him up a little bit. And then all of a sudden he remembers, I could go home to Bathsheba or I could keep begging God to keep me safe in battle. I'm, I'm gonna try to stay alive. And he again goes to the, where the guards sleep and he sleeps outside. Next day comes, David hears. 
And David is yet again just, he's sick of this. He's tired of it. He's tired of trying to manipulate. He's tired of trying to convince this. And he could have come clean. He could have stopped hiding. But he decides to go all in. And he's like, if I can't convince Uriah to do what I want, I'm just gonna do away with Uriah. He brings Uriah back and he goes, hey, I need you to deliver a letter. And in this letter, he describes a certain military tactic that would inevitably cause Uriah to be killed. Writes it out, signs it, seals it, stamps it, gives it to Uriah. And Uriah goes back with his own death sentence. They fulfill the orders exactly as as told. Uriah dies, David gets news of his death, and he sighs a deep sigh of relief. Gets a good night's rest, and he thinks no one will ever know. It's done, it's hidden, it worked. How many of us know what it's like to work so hard to hide, to cover up, to scheme, to know what it's like to hide the credit card statements or the change of clothes in the back seat or in the basement while while mom and dad think you're studying, the secret bank account, the items that we've stolen or accidentally borrowed without permission to feed the addiction, to clear the history in the search menu, the second social media account that mom and dad don't know about, the evidence of last night's party or the hint of smoke in the car. Man, don't, don't we all know what it's like to, to be looking at that line that we know we shouldn't cross and then to so badly wanna step over it and then we finally get brave enough to step over the line that we know we shouldn't and we have that rush of emotions of like the thrill, the joy, the sensation of I just crossed the line and I know I did, but then almost like two seconds later, a second rush of emotions, of fear, of anxiety, of paranoia, of what, what now? Um, can I keep it hidden? Will they, will they figure it out? Do they already know? I've never met someone who woke up and started their day by saying, you know what, today's the day that I'm gonna ruin my life. You know what, today I'm gonna go have an affair. Today I'm gonna go declare bankruptcy. Today I'm gonna do something that causes my kids to hate me forever. You know what, today I'm gonna become an addict. Yeah, that's what I wanna do with my goals today. Let's go get started with my to-do list. No No one ever starts their day like that. But in moments of boredom, you make a foolish decision and we're tempted to do what David did where he crosses a line, then he hides it and he hides it and he does whatever he has to do to keep it hidden. We're all part of the rough crowd. We're all part of the crowd at some time or some way or another, and, and we all know what it's like to try to hide something because we just didn't wanna let them down. To hide something because we just didn't wanna feel the shame in their judgment. Or we've convinced ourselves that nothing good could come from them knowing that I've done this. Or, or we convince ourselves, it's just a small thing. It doesn't, doesn't matter that much. It's just, it's just a small thing. No one, it doesn't really matter. Or maybe you convince yourself the way that I've convinced myself too many times of, you know, just give me a little bit more time, just a little bit more time, and I can manage this. Or my personal favorite, I'll never let it get too far out of control because I've got this. I've got this. How many excuses have we made to keep sin hidden, believing that hiding is the best way to move forward. But the truth, the truth that we're looking at is the longer we hide, the greater the hurt, 
But when we stop hiding, that's when we start healing. One of the, uh, the best excuses I've ever heard from Christians is Christians love to say, God loves me no matter what, right? God's gotta forgive me no matter what, right? He's gotta accept me no matter what, right? And here's the crazy thing about grace. You're right. God does love you, does accept you, does forgive you. He will be with you no matter what. But God's love isn't permission. See, God's love actually compels him to help us stop hiding because God knows that the longer we hide, the more it festers like a wound and it is hurting us and it's hurting others. And so God is gonna do everything he can to help get our attention to stop hiding. It's true for us and it was true for David. And, and see, one of the ways that God loves us is he'll actually try to speak in ways that we will understand and we notice and to get our attention and the way that we'll pay attention. And so for, for David, he knew that David would listen best to a story. So he taps this guy on the shoulder, his name's Nathan. He says, Nathan, I need you to go tell the king a story. And, and you can read the full story in 2 Samuel 12. And so Nathan shows up and he goes to tell David the story. And the story is basically about this poor guy. He had one lamb, he loved his lamb. His lamb was super special. Like this was like the lamb that he loved. But the, the poor dude with one lamb, he had a neighbor, rich, powerful neighbor with lots of sheep. But one day, the rich, powerful neighbor, he had a friend come over and the friend says, I really want lamb chops for dinner. And the neighbor goes, I would love to make you lamb chops. I don't wanna take one of my sheep. Let's go take that guy's sheep. Let's go take his lamb. He's pathetic, he's powerless, I'll take his. So the rich, powerful neighbor goes, takes the poor, helpless neighbor's sheep, cooks it, serves the lamb chops, and it's a great evening. And so Nathan tells David, who was once poor, once a shepherd, who knows what it's like to love a lamb, tells him this story. And David just buys it, hook, line, and sinker. He's believing this actually happened somewhere in his kingdom, and he is irate. He actually, he says, you know, we should kill that man for acting like that, but he knows he legally can't kill him, so he's like, make him pay it back four times. Go to the full extent of the law to punish this guy. We can't have people abusing their power on the weak and helpless. We can't have people taking things that's not theirs. Get that man. And this is where Nathan has more boldness and courage and guts than I could ever imagine. Takes a deep breath, he looks at King David and he goes, you, you are that man. David, you're that man who took something that wasn't yours. You're that man who abused the powerless. David, you're that man. And at that moment, it all came crashing down for David. We all know what that feels like. That moment when we're busted. But how tragic is it when the things that we've been trying to hide finally catch up to us and it didn't have to be that way. We finally used the wrong credit card and they noticed on the statement. The smell lingered on our clothes longer than we ever expected it would. We forgot to clear the history our friend tagged us in a post not knowing that mom could see that account. Dad thought he was being nice and went to change the oil in your car but discovered what was in your car. You received a text message from the wrong person at the wrong time. You thought they were asleep. The door wasn't lock, locked. Guys, I know. I know what it's like to be busted. I know the pain in their eyes 
and the anger in their voice and the shame in my heart. I know that moment when all of my hiding and covering and scheming finally crashes and then it kicks me in the face where my stupidity shows up and just knocks me out. I know that moment and I don't want that moment for anyone at any of our locations. For anyone joining us online, I do not want any of us to experience that pain, that moment, that hurt. See, some of us are hiding right now. And you know exactly what you're hiding. And you know exactly how hard you've worked to keep it hidden. And I just gotta let you know it's a matter of time before the cards come crashing down and you're busted. Guys, I'm not telling you that because I'm judging you. I'm telling you that because I love you. And the truth is, is the longer we hide, the greater the hurt. But when we stop hiding, we can start healing. When we stop hiding, we can start healing. And so I wanna tell you guys, how do, how do we move forward? And this is where I said earlier, we're gonna challenge all of us to take a step that could be one of the most uh, courageous, scary steps we've ever had to take. And, and so the Bible actually tells us how to stop hiding. It, it says, confess. And I love this verse. It says, confess your sins to each other and pray to each other so that you may be healed. Confess your sins so that you may be healed. Confession leads to healing. Confession leads to healing. It moves you out of hiding and towards healing. And so what does confession mean? It means to start by owning it. Just to simply own what you've done to actually say, I went there. I chose that. I watched that. I paid for. I replied to. I ordered. I kept doing. I did that and I own it. The first step to stop hiding is to stop lying to yourself and just own what you've done. So own it, but then we gotta admit it. You gotta admit it to God. You gotta say, God, I'm sorry. I own that I did that. I made that choice. Forgive me for what I did. Um, And here's the good news. Um, May make it a little bit easier. God already knows. So just in case that surprises you, God God knows, and he still likes you, and he still loves you. And like we've talked about for the last three weeks, he's still gonna love you and forgive you and accept you and be with you. He knows, and he still cares. So you gotta let God know. But then you've also, I encourage you to admit to a trusted friend, to someone who's wise, to be able to say, how do I move forward in this? And and if you find yourself not having someone who you trust to, to share that with, at every campus, down in the front left, we've got people waiting to pray with you. They would love to be a part of that journey with you. We've got a great team at the Next Steps area at every location. We also have awesome staff at every location who's also vetted incredible counselors within our community that we'd love to get you connected with to give you trusted, wise wisdom on how do you move forward. Because the third person that you've gotta to admit to, you've gotta to admit to the person you've wronged. You gotta to go to them and you gotta say, I, I did that and I own it and I'm sorry. So you gotta own it, you gotta admit it, but then you gotta stop it. And this is often the hardest one because you gotta do whatever it takes to stop it, to cut it out of your life. You gotta get great friends around you who will ask you the tough questions, who will hold you accountable. And if I'm honest, um, I've had some really embarrassing addictions in my life. Some things that just got a hold of me at a young age that I worked really, really hard 
to hide. Or, and I got really good at hiding them. Um, and, but when I finally owned it, I finally admitted it, and I finally did the work to stop it, um, it really changed my life, and it changed my marriage, and it changed some of my relationships. But stopping wasn't easy. And just because I chose to stop it doesn't mean that I didn't wanna go back. I actually wanted to go back, and I actually wanted to keep hiding, and I actually wanted to keep enjoying it one more time. And so because I know I love to hide, I actually had to set up some automated reporting in my life to hold myself accountable to keeping it stopped. And so I've got an automatic report that I have no say over that goes to three people. The first one, it goes to my childhood uh, best friend, Joel. He's down in Georgia. He loves me. He knows me. He automatically gets it. The second one it goes to is Paul Atkinson. And, and if you know Paul, he's our York campus pastor. Paul fully embodies tough love. That boy is not a pushover, and he does not wimp around. And he holds me accountable with grace and encouragement, but he does not. He is not a pushover, and I need that. But I also realized that um, I didn't mind upsetting Joel and Paul and I didn't mind them being frustrated with me, but I also realized it's not their couch that I'm sleeping on whenever that report comes out, so my wife gets it as well. And I've gotta look at her eyes over the dinner table knowing she saw that report. Because I've gotta stop it, because I know I hide, I know I run back, and I also know that the longer I hide, the greater the hurt. The greater the hurt for me, the greater for hurt, the hurt for those that I love. But when I stop hiding, I start healing. Man, when we confess and choose to stop hiding and we own it, we admit it and we stop it, we find healing. Will there be consequences? Maybe. And we kind of deserve those. We, we did what we did and part of being an adult is getting what you deserve. Um, but God also tells us there may be consequences, but he says there's also no condemnation. There's forgiveness, there's grace, there's help. God will walk with us. The faith community will surround you and support you through it. And if you're doubting if it's really worth it, if you doubt if confession really matters, I love that David's story doesn't stop there. David actually writes a, a psalm or a, a song, as we would call it today, that describes what happened. He said, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived with complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, finally I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. David, the murdering, adulterous liar who hid and did horrible things, confessed, he owned it, he admitted it, he stopped it, and then he experienced grace. And he could say, oh, what joy. And guys, our hope is for you to have that same song, for each of us in this place to not know the heavy weight of what we're hiding, but to know the joy and to know the forgiveness and to know the grace that we can experience when we come out of hiding. So guys, David discovered what we've all discovered, 
that when we stop hiding, we stop hurting and we start healing. When we stop hiding, we stop hurting and we start healing. See, David, he was a part of the rough crowd. I'm a part of the rough crowd. We're a part of the rough crowd. But because we're part of the rough crowd doesn't mean that we have to be a part of the hidden crowd, but that we can actually be a part of the healing crowd. And it all starts when you choose to confess and to come out of hiding. David discovered what it's like to come out of hiding. And Julie, Julie's one of us. She's a part of our rough crowd. But she found healing when she chose to stop hiding. There had never been a question as to whether there was a God or not. God was there, he was real. It, there was no question for me. The way that he fit into my life was what I always questioned. I felt like he, that he was this big presence that didn't really have anything to do with my small little life. A lot of what I was taught as a child was that God is someone to be feared. It's either there's right and there's wrong, and if you do wrong, you know exactly where you're going. It's not a good place. I decided, well, I'm going to hell. That's it. That's all that's happening. That's, that's about, that sums it all up for me. And I can move on with my life knowing full well that I'm going to hell and that God just doesn't want anything to do with me. My tattoos for me are in armor. I feel like having these puts a little bit of a wall up with people. And in my youth, that's what I needed. I couldn't survive without it. I needed that separation between me and someone else. And physically tattooing myself was gonna do that for me. I was initially a call center representative and I was promoted up to the supervisor position and I went to another supervisor position. So I quickly moved up the ranks to where they ultimately said, we are moving our operations to Georgia. We want you to come with us. So I went. I met my ex-husband, who is also from Pennsylvania, in Georgia. We got married within a year of knowing each other. We were very bad with drug use together. We were doing uh, a lot of pain pills, opioids, um, anything we could really get our hands on. And I was introduced on how to get this through the internet. So I was ordering them online, getting them delivered to my door. It was, you know, a daily thing for me. Within three months of getting married, I was pregnant with my daughter, Ruby. After Ruby was born, he was unfaithful to me and I was completely numb. It was, I had no feeling, I didn't care. It was just the strangest, most out of body feeling that I've ever had. I just wanted to get home and I wanted to get back to Pennsylvania. I just, I was done when I moved back home. I was introduced to Xanax, which is like a sedative in a way. And I was taking maybe 10 times the recommended dosage per day and driving to Philadelphia every day for my job. I was repeatedly getting in car accidents because I would nod off and hit someone. You know, people always talk about their dream job and their dream career, and I had just watched it 
go in seconds. It was devastating. But my initial gut reaction was to do more drugs, which any addict will tell you that that's their coping mechanism is, is that. Mainly what I did was wake up in the morning and start drinking, and that would be all I did. I would black out routinely. For Christmas, I believe of 2015, that would be, yes, 2015. My daughter was with me that Christmas, and I had promised myself on Christmas Eve that I would not drink that day. And I got maybe a half hour into my day and realized I could not do that because at that point in alcoholism, you start physically showing if you're in with physical withdrawal symptoms. So I would be just sweating and shaking and just, I had to drink in order for my, to look normal. What was also a habit of mine was to drink too much beyond the point where I would just black out. So when we got to the church that day, uh, within 15 minutes of me being there, I was gone. And I was basically carried out of the Christmas Eve service. I was just far gone and babbling and it was just very, very upsetting for everyone around me. I woke up hours later had missed Christmas, had, my daughter had gone home. My parents sat me down and had their little intervention, uh, the, the kindest intervention that you could ever give a person because they are very kind-hearted people. And I flatly told them, no, I don't want help. There was just so many forces, evil and good, at work in my life in those days and it was very raw and very emotional for me and I do feel like there was some type of like a fight going on for for me I went to jail for a DUI uh, and then again for driving without a license and then for driving with a suspended license. It was just time after time. And it would be every two months, I would go to jail for three days. But it took six individual trips to jail to finally get my wake-up call. I remember laying there and just called out and asked for help from Jesus. I never knew how to pray correctly before. I was always praying for something, like, give me this, give me that. If you only give me this, this will be my, make my life better. If you only do this for me, it'll make my life better. But in that moment, I learned I have to ask for strength. I have to ask for understanding. I have to ask for hope. You know, not asking for to be out of a situation because there's no one was getting me out of that situation, but asking for help going through it. So I am now two years sober, a little bit over two years. Um, I have been able to get more and more time together or time with my daughter. And she now is here about three months out of the year. In the car the other day when we were driving, she goes, I know where you were, mom. And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? She goes, you were in rehab. <laughs> and I go, yeah, I was in rehab. And she goes, yeah, but, and it, you know, it really helped you. She knew 
when I was sick and she could see that. And now she sees and gets to experience the best version of me. I'm so used to things going bad and I'm so used to things just falling apart. And this past two years, nothing's fallen apart. I used to think of my tattoos as an armor and as a shield from the outside world. And now I kind of enjoy when people ask me about them. I like that they separate me from the pack and I don't look at them at all as something to hold me back or something to keep me isolated from people. Instead, now they're just a celebration of life and just adding color to the world and telling a story. Um, I think that the rest of my life is going to be about telling my story. I also decided to go back to college after 20 years of not going, and I'm going to be a social worker. So I'm using my experience and the rough things that I've gone through for good and to help other women in my similar situation that might not know how to get out of their situation. And I think that once you realize his presence and how big and powerful it is, it's life-changing. My life was saved by Christ. It was not just merely changed. It was, you know, without him, I would not be here.